Hello, this is Jane Sigford, convener of the podcast Views and Voice Above the Noise, which is hosted by MASA, Minnesota Association of School Administrators. Today's topic is the first of several, I hope, around a theme of women in the superintendency. One of the goals of the strategic directions of MASA, Minnesota Association of School Administrators, is to quote, coordinate professional learning that meets current needs and proactively explores innovative concepts for how to sustain high performance of members and their districts over time, end quote. An action step to accomplish that goal is to, quote, identify needs and interests based on all member cohorts, end quote. This has led to an examination of and conversation around what women leaders may find supportive in their practices. A report to the MASA Board of Directors stated, quote, MASA has recognized the value of supporting aspiring and practicing women in school district leadership roles. We value a diversity of ethnicity and heritage backgrounds among our leaders, but this work will focus specifically on gender regardless of race, end quote. According to AASA, American Association of School Administrators, roughly 27% of superintendents are women across the United States, although 72% of all K-12 teachers are women. Teachers and principals are the pipeline to people seeking the superintendent position. However, in the last five years, the population of women superintendents has stayed at roughly only 16% for Minnesota. This number has not changed over a period of time. At the MASA Spring Conference in 2019, it was announced that MASA will examine where we are now and what can be done. To that end, a document was shared with the board with statistics on where we are, what MASA has done in the past to support women, what are ongoing issues, and what are possible suggestions to meet the goal of encouraging and supporting more women to be superintendents in our state. This podcast is one support for this work of MASA by contributing to the discussion and by posing difficult, thought-provoking discussion questions that have no easy answers. I'd like to pose two ideas as discussion starters. One, what are the ramifications of the way our schools are structured? Two, is this structure still viable and practical in meeting the needs of public education of the future, particularly by being inclusive and welcoming to women and people of color? We often look to the past to get insights into the present and the future. However, that could be a reason that our number of female superintendents is stuck at 16%. Always looking backward focuses our vision on what was, not on what could and should be. We keep trying to see how women or people of color do or do not fit into the leadership structure of education that we have had in this country since our country began. Headmasters and school boards have been male. Women were not even seen as capable of teaching older children, let alone capable of assuming positions of leadership. Historically, we also know that many of the philosophies and theories that we use as guides as to how we think about our psychosocial development were developed with men only. Women were then held up to those ideas to see how and if they fit. Maslow, Kohlberg, Binet, and Freud are some of such theorists. So how we think about intelligence, ego development, even self-actualization, are compared to men as the metric. Some people have suggested that Maslow's hierarchy would be more descriptive of women, for example, if it were inverted. Interesting idea. Making it even more complicated, many of our ideas of leadership have evolved from management theories which were developed by and for men. Currently, we recognize that leadership and management are not the same. 
One pervasive management theory that we study in educational administration courses is that of Frederick Taylor, who, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, espoused his theory of scientific management. Such key ideas as punctuality, accountability, rationality, efficiency, and work ethic are a few of those ideas of his that have become embedded into our expectation of what a manager or leader should be. Vestiges of this scientific management are seen in such movements as the quality movement created by W. Edward Deming that was largely responsible for the rebirth of industrial Japan post-World War II. That theory was brought into schools wholesale in the 1980s. Takeaways from that resulted in outcome-based education, and one could contend that the standards movement is the latest evolution. Management is often about problem solving and demonstrating tangible results when superintendents are judged based on fiscal management, maintained buildings, engaging the politics surrounding their district and public education, and hiring good subordinates such as principals who then manage individual buildings. But leadership is not the same as management, although we need both. We constantly say we value and need good leaders, but what do we mean by that? What type of leadership do we need? What does that look like? What structure promotes that type of leadership that we need for the future? These questions even lead to a further dilemma in that different systems need different leadership types, thereby contributing to the many theories of types of leadership. There is no one style of leadership, whether exhibited by a male or female, that works in every situation. Our evaluation system in itself is a carryover from the industrial age, believing that the number and quality of, quote, widgets produced is an indicator of good management. Leadership is hard to evaluate by widgets because much of leadership is soft skills. Certainly, management and leadership are intertwined, but how we view those attributes translates into what school boards are seeking in a superintendent. The point is that we have created a hierarchical structure based on the definition of efficient management that worked in an industrial world, and we have slid those ideas into the definitions of 21st century leadership. Plus, the models were developed with white male managers in mind. Women and people of color were then judged based on how well they fit the model, not necessarily on their unique styles and gifts. Leadership is like water. It takes the shape of its container. If one pours water on a table, the water seeks the boundaries, may run off the table, or probably will puddle on the floor. Or, if one fills a vase for flowers, the water fills the space available, whether the vase is cylindrical, square, or heart-shaped. Leadership is like that. Whoever is the leader in an organization must recognize the current structure and operate within it to a major degree. Change is difficult because one may have to, quote, break the vase, unquote, or not pour water on the table. What determines the type of leader and the necessary skills that person must have is determined by that framing structure. That leads us to consider my second question. Does our current structure satisfy what we need for the future? What would a structure be for the achievement gap to disappear, for teachers to be successful, and for women and people of color to become more evident in teaching positions and in leadership roles? For the purpose of the podcast, just let's look at one facet, that of the role of superintendent. Jobs have become more complex largely because of the increase in knowledge. To compensate for that, many areas, such as the medical world, 
have had to change job descriptions and the skills needed to fulfill those positions. Doctors can no longer know it all, but must specialize. For example, there used to be general practitioners, which are now almost extinct. Then there were specialties like cardiology. Now there are so many specialties, even within cardiology itself, that people get confused. There are cardiologists, electrocardiophysiologists, cardiac surgeons, pediatric cardiologists, to name a few. Yet in education, we keep the same structure, even though the intensity, responsibility, and complexity of the superintendency has changed drastically, particularly in the past 10 years. The complexity of our society is not going to slow down. It will certainly increase. Are we naive in thinking that one person can do this job and do it well? One of the difficulties is that when a person has been taught, raised, and worked in a system, it is difficult to see it objectively and even more difficult to imagine viable alternatives. Jennifer James, cultural anthropologist and author of Thinking in the Future Tense, described the way people act within systems. She posited that if a person enters a new culture during the first six months, that person is able to see positives and negatives with a fresh eye. After that, one has become part of the system and therefore it becomes more difficult to be unbiased about one's observations and reflections. As we have been part of the education system forever, it's difficult to imagine something new, so we fall victim to making tweaks or minor changes that largely maintain the status quo. We find it difficult to really make change. One of the concerns is that women are not perceived as having a strong finance or political background. There is no gene for finance on the Y chromosome. Men have to learn these skills as well. Candidates, regardless of sex, receive training and courses during their licensure programs. Plus, MASA offers a wonderful Great Start program for new superintendents to assist in the learning process. Men and women are both learners. Sometimes when we describe leaders, we say they are a strong leader. Defining strength is difficult. It is true that men are physically stronger than women. They have more large muscle mass physically than do women. However, a leader needs strength of courage or strength of will. It isn't about being able to punch someone. What if the hierarchy were flattened? Currently, the superintendency is the role of ultimate authority and power in a district. There is status in the job and it's the highest paid within the system. What if that were different? What if the responsibilities and power were shared, as in the current theories about the power of collaborative leadership, that collaboration brings more voices to a discussion and often better decisions because of it? What if there were a person in charge of the managerial aspects of the position, another in charge of the instructional, another in charge of the financial, a veritable troika? No one person would have to have the sole burden and supposition of expertise in all areas. Perhaps the position would not be such a source of burnout, and perhaps people would stay in the role longer. I'm sure there are many options that we could think of. If the role were redesigned, then the next task would be to define what specific skills each position needed and find leaders to fit those qualifications, whether those leaders are male or female, black, brown, or white. Another question is whether the position would attract more women and or people of color if the structure were changed. We will not have a major gain in hiring women or people of color until we stop looking at how candidates fit the white male role model. That's a strong statement, but I believe it to be true. 
The literature and research projects talk about male and female leadership styles. For example, C. Chris Bruner, retired professor from the University of Minnesota and author of many books, including Principles of Power, Women Superintendents, and The Riddle of the Heart, studied women in the superintendency. She talked about women exhibiting, quote, power with, and men are more likely to exhibit power over. That discussion might become a moot point if we stop judging women by the criteria of what we currently define as leadership. A corollary to this discussion of finding good leaders regardless of sex or race is the need to recognize that sometimes consciously, but I believe mostly unconsciously, we are part of a culture that exhibits subtle and not so subtle sexism and racism. The important part for each of us is to be reflective and honest about our own biases and look at the unconscious and conscious ways that discrimination rears its head in thinking and hiring. We will not have 50% female or people of color superintendents until we change our thinking. So how do we do this? The document prepared and presented to MASA has possible suggestions. One, find people who encourage and tap people on the shoulder. Provide solid mentoring by recruiting and supporting effective mentoring pairs. Educate school boards on the advantages of a diverse leadership and the possibility of their own implicit biases. Help women get licensed. Offer training cohorts for women in the superintendency in such managerial aspects as finance, working with school boards, etc. Provide opportunities for networking. And compile research. In conclusion, to get the leaders we need for the future, we need to wrestle with two difficult questions. One, what are the unconscious effects of our current hierarchical structure? And two, does this structure really work as we move forward? There's a great book called The Worst Hard Time by Timothy Egan, which discussed the creation of the Dust Bowl of the 1930s. At that time, the economy was in the tank. Nature refused to give up rain. So when wheat prices fell, farmers just dug up more natural soil-hugging grassland and created the worst man-made ecological disaster in the United States. The wind just blew away the soil of several states from the high plains. Instead of honoring nature, man destroyed it. We know what works. We can't use old ideas and just keep digging up more grassland. Instead, we need to plant grass. The big question is do we have the courage to go against past practice and create a fertile ground for new ideas and structures, thereby including more diverse leaders into public education? Thank you for listening. This is Jane Sigford signing off. My email is jlsigford at comcast.net. I'm hoping that there will be sequels to this podcast in a series exploring how do we get more diverse leaders into our system. Again, thank you for listening.